You could have a tiny little furry human in your house right now and you wouldn't even know. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of House of Bards. We were going to do a different topic for this podcast, but there was a problem with that. Um, mm. There's actually a particular event in the in our games on Mondays that we're waiting to pass before we start talking about this because it will provide a lot of the material. Yeah. And uh, as some of you may know, um, the Monday before the Thursday we're recording this on, uh, there was a like international Skype downage. Like the whole of, of Skype was not functioning properly and Essentially, the game on Monday didn't happen because we weren't able to get everybody into the, into the Skype call. Mm. So, with that in mind, um, we're instead going to do a topic that I didn't necessarily want to do this soon after the End of the World episode, where yeah. I would talk a little bit about this. But we're kind of running low on topics in the tank, so, you know, if, if you really like uh, the podcast, one thing that you could do is, you know, recommend us topics to talk about, because... Mm-hmm. It's always kind of difficult coming up with stuff. Um, yeah, otherwise we will really be scraping the bottom of the barrel. It'll be me buying choose-your-own-adventure books and we just sit here for three hours and play them. Which... I actually have one of those like with me right now. <laughs> I can't remember which one it is, but I think it's one of the good ones. Yeah. So. I'm pretty sure it's House of Hell, actually. Oh. Or something like that. Yeah. Anyway. Yes, anyway, so... This is perhaps going to be an angrier episode of the podcast than normal because I have strong opinions about this matter and Beth has yeah. a lot of notes, some yeah. of which are about comics. So Yeah. Well, I don't yeah. need notes to talk about comics. I can ju- I could go off on the fly about comics, but there mm. is some there's a good amount of material that I've prepared, so hopefully we'll be all right. So, yeah, th- this episode is about cynicism versus idealism. Mm. Which is the kind of a particular worldview, a cynical story um, and an idealistic story are two very different um, themes and worldviews that you're presenting. Um, not that I- idealistic stories aren't necessarily always um, saccharine or goofy or silly, and cynical stories aren't necessarily always always serious. Um, so In fact, th- it's kind of a weird, like, false binary because. Mm. Obviously, somebody can be idealistic about ideals that conform to a cynical worldview. Mm. And, you know, a story... That would be horrible, and I wouldn't want to meet a person like that, (laughs) but it could happen. Yeah, but, you know, um, a story can have a cynical view on things like governments and institutions, but have a very idealistic view on humanity. Like, we would generally regard Harry Potter as being quite an idealistic series, even though J.K. Rowling doesn't have... A lot of faith in things like mass media, um, mm. the government, and stuff like that. Um, and also that, like, if when you start analysing Harry Potter, you realise that it actually has a very cynical view of the world that it has created, especially in the later books. Like, there's a transition yeah. from like this idealised perspective of you know this uh, this world that's like ours, but you know, ma- magical and, and, and wondrous. And then in the later books, you realise that there's actually quite a lot wrong with the way that people relate to each other in the wizarding world. That, you know, there's a colossal amount of inbreeding because of, you know, the small number of, of people 
who you know actually are wizards yeah and like the the culture itself is stagnating mm. and is you know critically in need of some sort of progressive influence that it isn't getting yeah but on the uphand of that she's very idealistic about humanity and humans and love and the empathy that you know people can do a lot of good in the world if they if they choose to do it um a lot of young adult dystopias are quite similar they don't have a lot of faith in the government but they do have a lot of faith in teenage girls so there you go um so it's it's not you know cynicism so it is a false binary and it's a sliding scale of uh cynicism and idealism truthishly no no it's it's the sort of idea of it's not quite what we mean no it isn't what we mean is that there are two um sort of polarized opinions generally um or at least two extremes on a a continuum of opinion about the way that certain kinds of stories ought to be told ideally Mm. um which can cause a lot of infighting between the kinds of people who like to, you know, indulge in those stories, and that that's going to come across sometimes at the table. Mm. What we're saying is this episode is going to be about your position on that scale and what to do about players who are on a very different position on that mm. scale. Yeah. So Hopefully. Yeah. One of the things is when either you as a creator or you as a, a viewer enter into a narrative there's kind of this there's an implied contract about your expectations and what you should want from a particular series so in this instance we're going to be talking about the creator is the game master and the viewer is a player in this instance which will change things but we'll talk about that a bit later on um the game master um, is assumed in our model to have created the game in quite well, created like the the yeah. you know the setting or whatever. Yeah. But this will also apply to a lesser extent if you are a a DM choosing pre-made modules, mm. because a lot of pre-made modules, um, particularly I would say for third edition and to a lesser extent fourth edition, because those had open game licenses. And as such, there were a lot of third-party modules made, as well as like the range of Wizards products, mm. which means there's a, there's a huge variety in tone, mm. uh, as well as a huge variety in everything else on, you know, what kind of thing is available. And so there can be a lot of controversy about like what's produced. In fifth edition, we're kind of going to have to see because there's not a huge number of uh, modules out yet, mm. and all those that have come out obviously are either the ones made by Wizards or potentially illegal uh, distributions of fan-made modules. Yeah. Or non-illegal but critically unhelpful distributions of non-setting-specific modules. Yeah. So, you know, but it's it's sort of, as a viewer, you would expect a very different thing from, for example, something like Attack on Titan, um, which is of a more serious tone and is of a slightly slightly more cynical worldview, but I would argue that the particular fandom misunderstands Eren as a character, and actually it's a very optimistic series. Um, but to something, say, like early Naruto, which is very optimistic, very idealistic, very typically within its genre. Um, so there are expectations you have about certain things. This is why a lot of people don't mind characters dying left, right, and centre in Game of Thrones to the point where it probably drives the fandom mostly to apathy, I feel. Um, but in a lighter series, characters that start 
good good characters, characters who you think, why are they dying? They seem to be dying for no reason. You might a fandom might get angry, and you might see the same people have very different reactions to say a death in something like The Walking Dead, to something like Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, like I, you know, I don't give a shit that Ned Stark's dead, but I'm really angry Fred Weasley's dead because it was two different series and the deaths were two different things. There was comparably. a different expectation set up by the contract yeah. as to what the meaning of those things would be. Yeah, that's very very common. Yeah, and naturally that is going to come into the kind of game you run, even though it's not really what we want to focus on. No, uh, obviously, you know, every week we say that we are the uh, very shared narrative focused, uh, you know, kind of of uh, role playing. That's that's what this podcast is about, mm. and obviously that includes a lot less in the way of character death than meat grinder scenarios, would. yeah, or tournament scenarios. Mm. For I, do they still do those? I kind of feel that they probably don't. That was like an AD and D thing, <laughs> um, mm. but tournament scenarios still exist, and I believe that many of them have been converted for newer uh, versions of the game. Yeah. But th- those tend to be a lot more brutal because there's an expectation going in that they will be. Yeah. Whereas the kind of campaigns that we make, there's kind of an expectation that you will be at least given an opportunity to try and form a character and that there's a non-zero amount of labor in making a good, memorable um, PC mm. that is... Like, it shouldn't be that that PC can't ever die. Yeah. But... If you're going to put that much labor into that, you know, yeah, th- that uh, endeavor, then you need some kind of assurance within the contract that the DM can't like dash all of that labor, you know, completely, mm. um, just on a whim. Yeah, it's. I am actually reminded very much of, perhaps in contrast to your world, there's um, a show that I like to watch a lot called The West Marches, um, and that is. A somewhat, it is quite a cynical world because it's very, the nature of it means that it's much more open and characters can kind of just go anywhere and do anything. Um, If you watch the show, you'll understand kind of what I'm getting at here. But a lot of the time, characters do die. Um, I think the very second session they ever did was a total party kill. Um, And it has kind of like revolving character, a revolving cast. So there's different characters each episode. Um, So if you're getting into like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that, it's probably not a bad series to watch and get you, and it'll probably get you pretty excited because it's you kind of get to see the range of different characters and and different people coming through each kind of week and doing different things and different quests, um, as opposed to other ones where you kind of have to sit down and you know. But sometimes it ends with someone dying or everyone dying. And sometimes when it's a character, someone who's been on a few weeks in a row and their character dies, it can be a bit gutting. Um, I remember there's one particular character um, that dies, I think, in her third session of appearing. But I think it was probably something like week seven she died. And everyone was absolutely gutted because she was like one of the best characters and she died. But that was the, you know, those players entered into a world knowing, okay, this is going to be a bit more meat grindery. This is going to, you know, you might not make it out alive necessarily. It's very easy to die in this campaign. And that was something that they agreed into. So, yeah. Consider also that the expectation of the frequency of death inherent in the contract will change depending on the system that you're working in. Yeah. 
For instance, it is expected that in Dungeons and Dragons, the capacity for player characters to die at any given point is quite high. Whereas, if you're playing Traveller, because that's not the focus of the game, it's less likely and therefore less frequent. Um, in the world of darkness, it's even less frequent. Mage, especially, like that's supposed to be the real world. Yeah. So death there is infrequent and as big a deal when it happens as the equivalent death in the real world would be. It's like if somebody dies in the world of darkness, it's not you don't chalk it up to shit happens. It's like at the very least, if you can't cover it up, the police are going to be there. Yeah. I mean, probably it's going to be like on the television. Like on the news, um, that you were straight murdered. Uh, maybe there'll be like mysterious circumstances. I mean, I presume like at, at like uh, higher levels, you know, mage and and vampire and whatever have means of covering this shit up, because you know, presumably there would be more awkward questions if they didn't. But it's like that kind of secret world stuff means that there will be real world consequences of character death mm. when characters do 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 die and. That kind of messes up the whole secret world conceit if that happens really, really frequently. Yeah. Because it's very, very difficult to hide your secret world behind, like, the veneer of real life that we are all familiar with, and which is why it can be used as a centralized storytelling tool if, like, people in that veneer are mysteriously dying all over the place. Hmm. And you have something like Apocalypse World as well, where it is quite easy to die, but it's because the nature of Apocalypse World is much more joined narrative-y. Um, it's almost like y- you kind of go along with it and you make the story up with the the um, game master as you go along. Um, where it's like, oh, actually, I feel it would be appropriate for me to die here. Or I might not want my character to die, but if they if they do die, I guess it's okay. It's It's a weird system, but it is very easy to die in Apocalypse World, particularly in the Apocalypse scenarios you do. Um, In Call of Cthulhu, which is kind of a strange one, death is infrequent, but practically guaranteed. mm. It's like, you're you're not gonna die a huge amount, but it is almost guaranteed your character will either die or go mad. Yeah. Possibly both. Mm. Like, that's an expectation that you go into the game with. Mm. Even though characters might not be put in lethal danger as frequently as they are in something like Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know, like, Call of Cthulhu is a strange one. Mm. But, yeah. So what I'm saying is, um, obviously the scenario will change players' expectations going in as to, like, what kind of frequency death is going to come at, but also the setting, the the, the actual system that you're using. Mm. On the cynical end of the scale, you have things like The Walking Dead Mm. and Game of Thrones and... Actually, mainly those two things. Give me another thing. What, what's a, a third thing? Uh, um, just, I mean, the continued grimification of comic books in general, particularly DC Comics, do, do this a lot now. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, Avengers Arena is a really good example of this, actually. Avengers Arena was where they decided that they were going to copy things like um, Battle Royale and the Hunger Games and put a load of teenage superheroes into a big death arena and have them fight to the death. And it was a bit like... Really? Because I'm not sure it really fits any of these characters' previous stories. But we'll touch, we'll, we'll probably get back on that, but continue your point. That's the cynical end. The cynical end posits that the game is supposed to be a simulation of real life. And even though real life does not have the fantasy scenario portrayed there, the human beings and human proxies, because all sapient non-human races in 
Dungeons and Dragons and other games are human proxies. In fact, 90% of all non-human sapient fictional beings posited by humans are proxies for humans. Yeah. Because, weirdly, we are the only sapient species in existence as far as we know, so it's actually really, really difficult for us to create fictional sapient beings that are completely unlike us unless you just sort of cop out and make them completely unscrutable to us yeah although i mean and i think even if we did if even if there were other species like us or the like species that had our level of sapience mm. i don't think we'd necessarily recognize it because they live in such a different way oh, absolutely. to us, and possibly I, I'm, I'm trying to like find some way yeah. to factor in the fact that i am aware that sapience as a concept is moulded by what we as humans are like. Yeah. Like, so we're it, more likely to find non-human sentience than mm, we are non-human sapience. Yeah, like we, we look at, say, something like orcas and they have things like families and, you know, pods and they're very attached to their families and they're kind of particular groups. They're incredibly intelligent, like comparable to, you know, I would say human intelligence, which, you know... And well, orca how are would, definitely very intelligent. You know, but they? at the same time, they're wild, you know, at the same time, would never really be able to understand it because they live in such a different way to us because they live in the ocean and the water and yeah like we as humans are kind of adapted to our particular ecological niche or lack mm. thereof so it's quite possible that other animals might be capable of reaching you know our particular niche but they don't because we're filling it yeah they have their own niche that they're perfectly adapted yeah. I mean, to I, like Rats can feel empathy and humour and they dream just like us. Rats could be like little furry people, we just don't know, because they live in such a different way and they've just filled their own little niche. You could have a tiny little furry human in your house right now and you wouldn't even know because you're just so puzzled by the fact that it's a tiny furry little human. Wow. <laughs> we are massively off topic again. We, we are, we are. We're we not can't help ever going ourselves. to be able to talk about this. All right. The <laughs> other end of the scale is idealism. Mm. Idealism posits that fiction's purpose is to uh, either distract from or attempt forcibly to alter the cynicism of actual real life and that therefore simulating real life within the model of the game is pointless. Yeah. And actually like antithetical to the purpose of the game itself. Mm. Both of these are to an extent fine. Yeah. Um, I like obviously you know that they tend to when they get into extremes have problems. Like extreme cynicism tends to make the holder dislikable and to cause like a collapse of ethics in decisions. Extreme idealism uh, tends to be hideously impractical. Yeah. The problem comes when you have a very strong idealist player and a very strong cynic player in the same group. Yeah. This will also be a problem if the DM is one extreme and is trying to interact with players who are not, but let's go first with the model that there are two players at a table, one of them is an extreme idealist and one of them is an extreme cynic. Mm. Uh, should we call the cynic Charlie and the idealist Isaac? Sure. Yeah. yeah. The first thing that we've got to get out of the way is this. Charlie and Isaac will not like each other. Yeah. There's not really... Like, even if otherwise they do like each other, they will not like... Like, they will not like the characters each other play. Yeah. And they will not like the way that the other conducts playing the game. Mm. There isn't a huge amount you can do about this. Because as far as each of them are concerned, the other is playing the game wrong. Mm. It's like the constant battle boiling away in the Magic the Gathering user base between Johnny and Spike. <laughs> and but particularly over Spike's willingness to net deck. Mm-hmm. 
those of you who know what I'm talking about will know that, of course, Johnny doesn't like the fact that Spike will is willing to net deck and play well with a net deck because Johnny considers deck building to be part of the game and therefore net decking is cheating. But it's still a valid part of the game, which means that there's nothing that can be done about it and it's just this constant fight between the two of us while presumably Timmy goes and has fun casting six drops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't but... get any of these jokes. <laughs> it's funny because Beth doesn't know what I'm talking about. That's oh, no, great. I will maybe explain it to her after we finish recording. But the point is, Charlie and Isaac um, have very, very different ways of playing the game and they have very, very different things that they want to get out of the game. Neither of them is wrong, even though like, if their philosophy carries over into their general life or if it is reflective of what they want out of their general life, it might cast some kind of light on you know, whether they're horrible people. But they're not going to like you. You can't do anything about this. Like mm-hmm. you can try and move them towards some kind of central position. You can maybe try swinging Isaac to be like idealistic about grittier things in the hope that that will appeal appeal to Charlie. You can try and appeal to some idealistic side of any character that Charlie is playing, because given that Charlie is a cynic, that means that Charlie can play a character with a different. Um, set of ideals to him Mm. but ultimately you can't do anything about the fact that these players are going to make decisions within the game that will anger each other yeah for instance let's think of an example um uh to an extent i think idealistic characters they're more prone to wanting to um communicate and, and negotiate with things like bad guys or people who are attacking them like a cynic is just like well, These... there's one kind of idealist who'll yeah. do that. Like some yeah. idealists, some idealists don't because some idealists are they want to play characters who are convinced that their cause is just. Yeah, and therefore they would always kill those that attack them or you know mm. otherwise menace them because they're always wrong. Mm. The way to get round this, obviously, is Charlie and Isaac need to get good mm. at role playing. Mm. That's the only way that you're going to find some kind of common middle ground yeah. here. Is Charlie and Isaac both need to be able to play characters who are unlike themselves, and that means that they are going to need to have some kind of record on the ethos behind how their particular characters are played. The problem with this is that you're going is if if you're going to have them like frequently build characters who are complex enough that that can be done you're going to have to cut down on the frequency of character death within a setting, and that's going to piss off Charlie. Mm. This is a really difficult problem to deal with. It has happened to me as a DM. I have also been Isaac. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. With a an appropriate uh, Charlie. And maybe I will tell some stories involving this person um, when we do the, the story podcast. What about you, Beth? Um, have you ever been one of these people? I don't think... Because in real life... I'm a bit of an idealist, you know, t- to an extent. Um, but I think I do have a tendency, not not Jay, but other characters. I remember a character I played a while back called Kate, and she was quite cynical, but she was kind of meant to be cynical. So she did come into conflict with other characters who were very, you know, idealistic and just, and this is what we do because we're superheroes. And she was very, yeah, but I'm a 90s anti-hero, so... I'm not going to have the same view as as you are, which works for that genre, to be fair, which is superheroes. Like, 
that's part that's part of the beauty of things like Justice League and Avengers, isn't it? Is that you have someone like Captain America side by side, someone like Black Widow. You know, you have Captain America. I like how both of the characters you mentioned are in the Avengers, not the Justice League. Yeah. Um, or, you know, Batman alongside Superman. I mean, like, th- those two characters have existed in the same space for so long that it feels kind of weird to point out the contrast between them, but yeah. there well, is yeah. one. Like, there, there there's is... a very heavy well, contrast the... I between mean, them. I mean, they're supposed to be DC, if you're fucking listening right now, there's supposed to be a difference between Batman and Superman, right? Right? Like, but maybe not. For some as fucking reason, as like when Batman is, is all dark and gritty, because like you look at the original Batman and he's the way, yeah. principled in a way that Superman would probably be fine with, but he's still like way, way darker and comes from a much darker place. Yeah, but you know, like, look, it's been an established thing since comics kind of got good as an art form, which is sort of about the late eighties, like the sort of late seventies, early eighties. Um, you know, because before then, like, you had the golden age of comics, and that's all fine and well, but that was fucking ages ago, so who fucking cares about it, really? Right? Sorry if that's upset some people, but who cares about what happened in the 30s and 40s in regards to comic books? Right? They are important in a historical context, in terms of propaganda and what um, the sort of comics that were put out. Like, Captain America is, like, his comics are very important to the 1940s because he was invented for specific war, pre- like, I'm getting a bit ahead of my... Anyway, <laughs> the history of comic books with Beth. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Batman has moved on and he's evolved. And Superman has moved on and evolved. Because Superman, when he was first introduced, he was a bit of a jackass, actually. He was a bit of a dickhead, okay? He was very mischievous. He'd play a lot of pranks. He wasn't necessarily a cynical character, but he was this view on, you know, like, here we have this godlike character. What kind of a god is he? Loki, apparently. Um... Whereas Batman was, he was definitely in the darker world, but he wasn't necessarily a cynical man. He was like, I believe people, and I think to an extent he's always been like that, but Batman is The implication that I got, like, looking through the history of Batman is that Batman was not really a character with a huge amount of levity, Mm. and generally he was at his most likable when he was doing the exact same shit he would normally do, but was being forced to do it by people being absolutely awful to him. Yeah. It was like... That was the time when you were most on Batman's side, when like, yeah. people were just like being horrendously fucking terrible to him and endangering his life and the people he cared about, and you'd be like, okay, Batman is being the exact same asshole as normal, but, you know, I get it. Yeah. It's, it's, and it, yeah, but, um, I'd probably do that too. Yeah, but um, it's like, uh, but then, you know, like, things move forward, and now for some weird reason, and, and you know, then things move forward, and Batman was a bit more, he was the sort of idealist in a very cynical, horrible world. You know, he was about justice and principally about believing that there is good in people, but he has to go and sort out all the bad people on his own. And that's where the Robins come into it, because Robins are like, collectively, all of the Robins, even the ones that, even the ones like Damien and Jason, who were a bit more dark, they're about principally being good and idealistic and showing Batman that actually there is hope left for humanity and allowing him to remember that occasionally. So when Batman does maybe meet a, you know, crying little girl, he's not a complete dickhead and he's like, hey, I recognise that you are a vulnerable child and I'm going to sit here and comfort you and make you maybe believe in heroes and good things again. Okay, you sorted out, good, let's take you home. Okay? It's it's nice. 
like, here's the inherent conflict between cynicism and idealism and why you can't have too much of one or the other. I want to talk about the Labour Party for a moment. Okay. I feel like Beth will probably work out where I'm going with this, but this is going to be a weird part of the podcast. <laughs> so, as you know, Beth and I both live in the UK. Mm-hmm. And as some of you may know, uh, the Labour Party, which is the current uh, political opposition here, just had an internal election to decide its own leader after Ed Miliband left. Yeah. And that leader has been announced to be uh, known socialist Jeremy Corbyn. I am going to explain to you why Jeremy Corbyn won the internal Labour leadership election despite united opposition from all three other candidates. And it does come down to this dynamic of cynicism versus idealism. In the 1990s, Tony Blair became leader of the Labour Party. And Tony Blair's uh, philosophy was that if you had um, people, if you had, you know, Labour being too adherent to their principles, then Labour would not be able to garner any votes from centrist voters, which would then go to either the Lib Dems, which in that particular point, you know, maybe just meant they were kind of wasted, or to the Tories. So Tony Blair's philosophy was that by conceding some of the more extreme Labour principles, Labour would be much more likely to win an election and thus be able to affect actual change on, you know, some of the more moderate principles that they had, rather than no change whatsoever, because they were always the opposition. He wasn't is... technically wrong. <laughs> no, he, that's the thing. He yeah. wasn't technically wrong. Yeah. In fact, like, in terms of doing what it's supposed to do, like, Blairite f- methodology does, to a certain extent, in most contexts, work fine. The problem is, once they dug in, like, that became the new normal for the Labour Party. It was new Labour. Yeah. And so you've got people coming into the Labour Party, as well as people voting for them, who are a lot more centrist and a lot more down with this idea of conceding more extreme policies for the actual acquisition of power, which is a very cynical outlook. Mm. The problem with this is that once you have that, those people are then willing to make that concession again from their own starting point, because they think, well, you know, my my personal politics line up very much with New Labour, but I'm willing to make some concessions to give me more centrist voters. And that will keep happening. So basically, the problem here was that you know, Jeremy Corbyn was essentially put on the ballot as uh, not a joke, mm. but sort of for him to be like the token socialist there, just so yeah. that Labour could improve its image with far-left voters, you know, yeah, the like, kind of people who normally jump ship to the Greens. Yeah, like I, I heard that um, he was gonna, he was up for the leadership, and I was like, oh, he's probably going to drop out in two weeks. Well, no, it, it was actually that... Um, uh, I think was it actually Liz Kendall who wanted him to be uh, wanted to get him the, the required minimum number of votes to put him on the ballot just mm. because they thought you know there's um, Andy Burnham Liz Kendall and Yvette Cooper yeah and they were like we should probably have like a far left old Labour guy just so that's the you know so that we still we'll look get, we'll get one like of those the in, same party we are know, yeah yeah we'll, we'll get one of those in and a load of people a lot of the kind of people who normally jump ship to the Greens will see that he's there, they'll be able to vote for him, it'll be a very small number of people, but those people will stay in the Labour Party because they were like, ah, we tried. Mm. And then we'll have them as Labour voters rather than losing them to the Greens, and that'll be good in a general yeah. election. Then he started winning. Yeah, and, and then the they problem, got, and then they shot themselves. The problem here is that um, Andy Burnham, who was probably the, the second most popular, mm. um, Yvette Cooper and Liz Kendall were all, like, second-generation Blairites, maybe third? Yeah. Whose 
like they were completely indistinguishable from the Tories that they were scaremongering about because they yeah. were willing to sacrifice that much. Mm. That was the problem, is that Jeremy Corbyn was an idealist. Yeah. And presumably still is. Yeah. That's one of the big worries about whether or not he can win a general election. But he was like actually able to make promises about the kinds of idealism that people in the Labour Party actually wanted. Because people were like, when the party has become so cynical that it's willing to, you know, basically sell out anything for like the most foundational policy, like there's no reason you wouldn't just vote for the Lib Dems. Yeah. I mean, I mean, o- I mean, other other than other than the fact that they're spyless and yeah, ge- but it's like if everybody moved to the Lib Dems, yeah, it's it's like no, it's, that's the point. It's like Blairite Labour was not able to make any promises that it wouldn't be as spineless as the Lib Dems. Mm. Like that was the thing. Like it had painted itself into a corner. So of course the idealist won. Yeah, but that's just like pushing the the metronome back the other way because of course um, Blairite Labour came in for a sense of practicality when there was too much idealism. And now uh, Jeremy Corbyn has gone into power because idealism is pushing back against completely bland, um, cynical practicality. Mm. Well, it's, um, you know, it, cynicism and idealism, they're very much um, a... God, what's the... what's the, the It's a cycle, isn't it? Um, Definitely. I think you it's... see this all the time within yeah. genre. At the minute, we're on a very cynical kick in terms of media, I think. Um, there are some pushbacks against it, like I would argue the Marvel Cinematic Universe is fairly idealistic in regards to heroes and what they can do. Um, versus, I think it, it always tries to remain that because it was aware that that was what what it was profiting off. Yeah, especially when the Avengers came out, when yeah, or Avengers Assemble, as nobody calls it in this country. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and then you know, you are going to get this, and they have said this repeatedly: the Justice League cinematic stuff is going to be quite grim and quite gritty and everyone collectively groaned because dc please stop it's not the 90s anymore um but eventually even in the dc comics you are seeing this slight pushback against the cynicism and the grim darkness that's taken over lately and you've got series like batgirl and um gotham academy and even weirdly secret six is quite idealistic um for you know a series about criminals um and you, you have this sort of pushback against all of the grim darkness of the New 52. Um, I'm sure there's some more examples as well. of. I've seen more. quite a lot of like pop film critics who talk about like cinematic adaptations of superheroes specifically as this director and this scriptwriter are embarrassed to be attached to a superhero project. Yeah, and oh, the Fantastic Four, yeah. Like, it's, it's definitely the issue is that... You can't let a superhero film be a superhero film mm. because for some reason that is embarrassing. Like for a while there was that massive trend, especially in like superhero television, of making characters not use their character names. Yeah. Instead, whenever possible, they would be referred to by their actual names. Yeah. Well, in- including like in some like origin films, not even assigning the superhero identity to that character at all. Yeah. Just have them use their real name all the time because it seemed more real than having a costumed character dress up and 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 be flamboyant and ridiculously idealistic. And it's like yeah. I kind of get how in maybe in DC there's more of a pushback against that than Marvel because like Marvel did quite well off that I think previously. Whereas yeah, yeah. DC, like you think of ridiculously like hilariously over the top idealistic figures, you think of Adam West's Batman. Or yeah. 
if you want to be a little bit darker but still ridiculously idealistic, the more recent Batman films. Not like Christopher Nolan's ones, but the ones. Oh yeah, that. I was gonna say Christopher Nolan Batman movies are really oh, cynical. That's why really cynical. that that's why it's that's why it's Superman shit because he doesn't understand Superman. Um, mm. But no, it's like that kind of thing, isn't it? It's yeah. Um, God, what was my point? I mean, there's you had that moment in not just sort of before Iron Man came out, um, and we'll kind of ignore Blade um, because that was. Well, I mean, not, I, not Blade Trinity. That was Blade because everybody ignores Blade. <laughs> Sorry, we won't ignore. We'll 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 hold Blade close in our hearts, but we will but ignore. Blade is not relevant to this discussion. Yeah. Okay. Apart from Blade, Tr- but Blade, Blade Trinity wasn't bad because it was grim dark. It was bad because it was bad. Um, there is a difference. Um, but you had you know a lot of movies like um, not the Fantastic Four that's just been, but the Fantastic Four. The one with, with um, Chris Evans in it. Yeah, yeah. Who is the only person that anybody remembers from that Fantastic Four franchise, despite the fact that, you know, he was the third most important character at best. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I would argue, actually, that, like, even, uh, you know what, we'll, we'll talk about, it's not relevant, anyway. <laughs> we, when has that stopped us? Um, but, you you know, and that was quite, you know, like, Fantastic Four Rises, that was quite grimdark. The X-Men movies were getting progressively more grimdark and shit. Um, did I mention the Daredevil movie? Because that's grimdark and awful. And they were grimdark. I remember and... that the Daredevil movie existed. I know absolutely nothing about it. Yeah. And they were grimdark. And they were they were dark and they were gritty and angsty. But they weren't very good because of it. They weren't angsty. They were kind of wanksty, if that makes sense. You know, it was it wasn't like actual kind of darkness and matureness it just sort of felt like a 14 year old kind of you're 14 year old 14 year old having their emo phase essentially not an actual kind of person who's been through some shit like if you compare the netflix daredevil tv series which is dark but it is infinitely superior to the daredevil movie even though tonally they're kind of similar and it might be because the Daredevil TV, Daredevil Netflix series isn't that overwrought. It's not that bad when it comes to the religious symbolism. Or it does it, but it does it clever. But, you know, you have this sort of, you know, superhero movies must be cynical and they must be dark. And then you kind of had Iron Man come out and they would go, actually, maybe they don't have to be. Maybe they can be something else. And maybe they can be a range of um, kind of worldviews per movie. And you can have something like Iron Man, which is about what one man can achieve um and you can have the thing is like iron man was about a very cynical character growing to become a very idealistic one Mm. i think like maybe the main problem was that all three iron man movies were about that yeah (laughs) it's like you would get reset for for every one but it's like once this and i i actually would not even say that this began with iron man i think you have to go all the way back to spider-man and the success yeah. that they were having with not taking that too dark and of course the yeah. tragic failure of trying to make spider-man grimdark in spider-man 3 i know which it's not to say that but... spider-man isn't occasionally a dark character the black black suit spider-man is a thing that happened it just didn't happen the way it did in that movie like in the comic books it was good um and did not involve a emo haircut and an embarrassing dance scene um, and all kinds of other weirdness and ridiculous. Like, God, Spider-Man 3. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man 3 was also very weird because it was about them trying to please everyone and pleasing no one. Um, Although I would actually recommend that 
if it's still online somewhere, um, that you all watch that episode of um, whatever exactly which one the movie Bob, bleh, movie Bob shows for the Escapist he did it for, where he defends Spider Man Three. Mm. Um, because I don't know necessarily if Spider-Man 3 deserves to be defended, but he brings up a couple of fairly good points about the movie's portrayal yeah, of yeah. Venom and how, like, the bad things about Spider-Man 3 make sense based yeah. on that movie's portrayal of what Venom is like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I think actually a major problem here is that cinema has this issue with mistaking idealism for deliberate avoidance of emotional depth. Because fucking Michael Bay. Mm. Now, I wouldn't say that Michael Bay made the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles grimdark, because I don't think he did. That's not quite Michael Bay's style. But there's definitely a need to make that uh, property more cynical and faux realistic. Mm. Let's get something straight right here. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles do not have emotional depth. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are not supposed to have emotional depth. That doesn't mean that the idealism inherent in some of the things that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles do while being very campy, ideally, is, like, inherently connected to that campiness. It's not. It's like, the problem is, I think, for a very long time we've got into this position where very cynical things are very non-campy and have a lot of emotional depth, but only really one kind of emotional depth. And then you've got things copying those things that don't have any emotional depth at all because they've been made in imitation of the other cynical things, but without any real understanding of why those things were cynical. Mm. Well, then, this, is, this is why the Dark Age of Comics happened, isn't it? Because you had these fantastic comics in the 80s, like Identity Crisis. Well, I say fantastic. Identity Crisis is pushing it. Um, <laughs> but you had Identity Crisis. You had stuff like, um, shit, what was it? The Dark Knight Returns. You had stuff like, um, even stuff like The Killing Joke and other things that were dark and Watchmen as well and stuff that is dark and is quite gritty and nasty and a bit, you know, ooh, hot, you know, difficult to deal with sometimes. But at the same time, you, it was juxtaposed with other things. And then the 90s happened and they didn't understand what made the killing joke good they just understood that okay guns violence blood guts swearing sex drugs that's what makes this good because it's edgy and i'm like no that's not the same thing so then you get 90s comics in their kind of very weird kind of extreme aesthetic um you know because they didn't understand you know Basic, Rob Liefeld didn't understand what made the Phoenix Saga and Age of Apocalypse good. He just understood big guns and lots of muscles. Wow. Yeah, I think Rob Liefeld definitely understood lots of muscles. Yeah, too many muscles. More muscles that should head, be on the human so body. To be in my head. But yeah, it's like, if the dominant... I, this is something actually that I've been saying for a very long time, because, hey, spoiler alert, I'm an idealist. If you're going to talk about where I fall on this scale, I am very, very much an not the idealist of idealist. I still get annoyed at people who are politically idealist about the impracticality of the things that they say, even as I get annoyed at very practical liberals for the thing, like doing all of the things that socialists say they do that are annoying. Yeah. But it's like the problem I have is that because of this culture of imitation, there's a whole amount of, of cynical media being produced that is hinging itself on pushing back against an idealistic um, media establishment that isn't there and Not hasn't anymore, been there no. for 20 years. 
Yeah. And it's like, but they're doing that because that's like, that's their understanding of this is what media is like because counterculture got popular, Mm. but then it kept doing what it was doing before because that was what it understood was popular. Even when it's like, you can't, you can't swing yourself off being dark and gritty if nobody expects you to be anything else. Because mm. that's the whole reason. Like, if if your work is too idealistic, then it's going to lack emotional depth because there are going to be like you know emotional uh, concepts you're going to find it difficult to explore. If it's well, let's go to superheroes for a minute. So superheroes are you know easy to understand it. If there is an expectation in the contract with between the audience and the creator that Superman is always going to save the day, and any um, like setback that he suffers, even if it is ostensibly serious, can be resolved or done away with. Mm. Okay, you know that's that's fine. You're not ever going to be able to have a conflict about Superman suffering meaningful loss. Yeah, because that's way too idealistic. This is a problem that Doctor Who had as well. Yeah, and that's why some of those those. Um, properties will make a transition into cynicism like i'm pretty sure that's why that happened with comics yeah because suddenly you've got this whole new range for emotional depth where you can tell kinds of stories about these like unrelatable god people suffering Mm. very relatable problems well i mean to be fair it wasn't comics fault that they were kind of stuck to being essentially stories for children because there was stuff about the comics code and and yeah they couldn't tackle they couldn't tackle harder material of course they couldn't tackle something like Robin dying because superheroes weren't supposed to die. Not even bad guys were supposed to die. There was meant to be no death at all. So you can't have someone like Jason Todd being killed and Batman having to suffer loss and recover from it. And you can't have someone like Tim Drake come in again and teach him, actually, no, it's still okay. There are still people who love you and care about you. And, you know, death isn't the isn't the end for... And indeed, it wasn't the end for Jason Todd because he came back. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's You couldn't have a lot of death in comics because they were meant to be for children. And, of course, children can't handle difficult things. We know that's bollocks. They can. Unless those things are meted to them in a very controlled yeah. environment in this very special issue of something with characters you're never going to pay attention to again. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why cynicism happens as soon as those restrictions are taken off, because where we've got all of this new emotional depth, we can make these characters relatable because they will suffer real actual loss that real actual human beings have. And that's good because it shows that there are limits to them and the limits make the characters more interesting. Cool. Fine. When that becomes the standard, suddenly you've got characters constantly suffering real-life relatable losses, which is still happening as this pushback against an imagined enemy. Yeah, um, you know, it's... As well, especially when you have a heavily cynical series, like Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead, um, and that, that this includes, um, you know, other things as well. I'm sure you can think of many at home. But when characters die, or when bad things happen to characters, you become very unemotional to it. You become very non-reactive. You kind of go, oh, well, you stop caring because... You expect horrible... Like, you know, I think there were probably a lot of... Like, the Red Wedding, when that happened, was absolutely shocking because, to an extent, you didn't really expect all of those characters to die there and then in one big scene. That is something that was, legitimately, it was quite shocking. Later on, you have, you know, 
later on in the most recent series, you have Jon Snow getting basically stabbed by literally every member of the Night's Watch in what is quite honestly a ridiculously funny scene, right? It's absolutely fucking hilarious. I can't watch that seriously. And I'm wondering, if this scene was earlier on, maybe if this had happened in like season two or three, although it wouldn't have made sense it happening to Jon Snow, but if it had happened then, would I have been more shocked? Would I have found this shocking? You know, but because I've had, you know, five years of, oh, look, now it's time for, like, every character you care about to die. Oh, well, you know, and I can't bring myself, like, Game of Thrones constantly introduces new characters. I can't bring myself to care about any of them. Because you know there's no security for them. Yeah. It was the taking away of the traditionally understood plot security, the subversion of the contract that made Mm. the original Red Wedding made the original Red Wedding shocking, right? Mm. Or even Ned Stark's death, you know. Or even Ned Stark's death, yeah. You know, anyone can die isn't necessarily a bad trope, okay? Mm. But, I mean, this this is the thing about video games and tabletop games that have cynic and idealistic things. We're going to notice these things a lot more than as passive viewers because we're interacting with the world and the characters. We're going to notice these things because we have agency about where the story goes and... We do feel a degree of responsibility as players to what happens. Mm. So, to get a bit serious for a minute, although this episode's been... I mean, this episode hasn't been serious as much as it's been whiny, but... (laughs) (laughs) As a dungeon master or a game master or whatever, or even as a game dev or a writer who writes something where people are going to be interacting with the story to some degree... We're going to feel responsibility for the things you make, you make us do and the options you lay out in front of us. Like, and perhaps that's why people love... that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why people love video games and why people love role-playing, role-playing tip, pe- yeah, pen and paper RPGs and stuff like that is because we have a degree of agency about where the story goes and we feel responsibility for the actions of our characters. But it is important to remember that if you make a world where nobody can be saved, where, you know, you're constantly looking out for missing people, and by the time you get there, oh, they've they've died and you couldn't save them anywhere, we're going to feel a bit run down. We're going to feel like we can't succeed at anything. Okay, we might get to have cool fights. We might get to defeat a dragon, but we didn't save the princess. You know, know Dark Souls? Yeah. You know how fans of Dark Souls, who want you to like Dark Souls, always Mm. make a point of stressing that, yeah... It's hard, and it's dark, and you'll die a lot, but there's never really a point where, like, you get cheesed into a death where you couldn't have prevented it. Yeah. That's really fucking important, because that sense of agency is what makes the, like, it not bullshit that you would just not stop. Mm. That's the thing. And I mean, of course, like, Dark Souls doesn't really have, it does have narrative, but not, like, a huge amount of narrative. And a lot of it is implicit narrative, which I fucking hate. Mm. But other people like that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, unless you're the kind of DM who's going to sit around the table and go, look, guys, we're playing in a very cynical world. It's very dark. It's very gritty. There's a nothing lot of... stopping you from doing that. Which, which there isn't. Which is, you, if you're you that kind of DM. expectations in your players. Like, th- There's nothing wrong with you starting up and saying, this is the kind of expectation you should have about my game. Like, This is the kind of game that I run. And if you're not cool with that, you don't have to play. I mean... It kind of sounds weird because I'm sort of now, now kind of like drawing parallels to like um, advice on healthy consent in sexual relationships or something. Yeah, that's just what it sounds like <laughs> to me. But it's but it's fine because like then everybody knows what they're getting in for, into, and yeah. people like um, Charlie and Isaac might know. Okay, well my expectations don't really line up with 
what this game is going to be about. So either I don't want to play in this game, or I'm probably going to have a better time role-playing a character who isn't like me. Yeah. Or even, hey, maybe I'll be allowed to play around with the world a bit. Like, hey, you can be a DM and be like, look, my world is very idealistic, but that isn't always the case. And certainly I'm the kind of DM who's very kind of bendable to the will of players. So if you want to set out to have maybe more of a cynical character and more of a cynical worldview, that's fine um, as well. You know, like... Thing is, Charles and Isaac will not have, like, any problem playing the kind of character that they are the thing that's going to piss them off is whether the setting punishes them for it yeah for instance an idealistic setting will constantly try to portray charlie as the bad guy yeah or at least wrong yeah or or wrong and a cynical setting will constantly punish isaac for ever having any kind of like hope that an idealistic uh, Mm. outcome could be realized yeah well and both of them will resent you for that yeah like, really, th- this is why I'm an idealist, okay? Without hope, right? Without hope, without beauty, without art, without love, life is meaningless and it's awful, okay? Okay, the la- the world is a horrible fucking place and we need hope, okay? We're already in our apocalypse scenario and and I am your messiah and I will save you, okay? I agree. I mean, I think possibly I'm a bit more... Uh, I'm slightly more cynical than you, but I'm still an idea- idealist in that I would say fiction is about stories. Mm. And as long as we're a podcast about a very, very story-focused uh, form of role-playing, we will talk about comparisons to fiction. Yeah. And when Charlie and Isaac sit down, Charlie will want cynicism and practicality for a variety of reasons, but if he's a mature adult, then Charlie will want those things because he thinks that those things will be able to give him a challenge. Mm. Because when he's sitting down to D&D, D&D is, especially AD&D, is a system by which very idealistic goals are achieved within a mechanical framework that is itself very cynical. And that's the problem. It's kind of in the middle. So people have vastly different expectations based on what they value when they sit down to play. So... Charlie knows that characters can die at any time, and he wants the challenge of that. Isaac knows that it's a role-playing game, and you're supposed to role-play, and most of your characters are going to be doing something reasonably idealistic, and he wants to do that. Mm. Those are two completely different things, and there is going to be conflict between them. I wish at the end of this podcast we had a better answer for the, like this subject, but we don't. Well, perhaps we should stop seeing cynicism and idealism as a versus thing. And recognise that idealists need cynics, but cynics need idealists as well, you know? Yeah. Idealists need cynics to bring them back down to earth occasionally and remind them that, you know, it's not always cut and dry and that there are real shits out there. But And cynics need idealists to remind them of their own agency yeah. and to show them a lot of the purpose behind things that they otherwise do quite mechanically. Yeah. It's... That's the thing. Like, without idealists, nobody would ever change anything because they'd think, well, I, I'm, as an individual, can't do a huge amount to affect anything and I don't really see any convincing change arising because of my actions or even actions that I undertake with other people as a group. And idealists would never really be able to do anything at all unless cynics were, like, able to show them, like, the practical applications of their own actions. Yeah. So, what we're really saying here is vote in the Democratic primaries. I'm not saying that. Keep me out of that American <laughs> We're not shite. saying that. We're not saying that. It's, you know, but, it, you but, know. Uh, I would say 
we don't have a huge, like, very good answer to this question. So probably the most helpful thing that we've said all podcast is talk to your players before you start the game about what kind of game you want to play mm. and what kind of game they want to play. Yeah. And be prepared to, like, you know, try and, and make some compromises to come up with something that everybody will enjoy. Yeah. And at the same time, though, do remember that you are a creator and you are an author and art does change people. And it, it's a bit weird. There's cause... no, like, reason, especially in a very interactive format like a game, that you as a creator have to be this, like, ivory tower auteur who never listens to his audience. Ken Levine is a knob. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like you know, that's the best way to be. You're a GM, sure, and you have your own vision, sure. Maybe you want to stick to that, but also, like, these players are your audience and you're not going to have a fun time playing your own setting if you're not able to listen to what the people who are playing it with you want to get out of it. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. So, I think this has been House of Bards. I've been Beth. You can find me at Baroness Banff on Tumblr and on Twitter. Uh, please use the, hash- uh, the House of Bards hashtag. Uh, all one word on Twitter, but uh, three words on Tumblr if you make us anything that um, we might want to see or we might be interested in. Or if you have a new topic for the podcast. Yes, yeah. Uh, I've um, been you- Alex. You can find me on Clever Crumish. That is uh, Clever uh, Crumb-ish. That is a crumb of bread uh, on Twitter and Tumblr. Um... Also on YouTube, but, you know, you could just put a comment on the YouTube video if you want to contact us on YouTube. Yeah, we, we would love to hear the, that stuff from you. Mm-hmm. So, but, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, next week's subject will finally be interplayer character relationships. Oh, as we call it in the biz, love. The love episode. So, remember, wait to see. very much like the question I posed, but also related to possibly next week just remember this song what is love baby don't hurt me don't hurt me no more beth you fucking dirty memer <laughs> no more memes f- get the memes out of my podcast you did this i'll never as stop well. i fired you last time you're double fired now <laughs> i'll never stop batman you can't make me